Hey, Culture Hackers, it's Robbie Richman here, and I'm really excited for this podcast because we have Rich Potter in, and we're going to be talking about the culture of love and intimacy. Rich is the assistant professor and chair at AJU of the Department of Literature, Communication, and Media. Welcome to the show, Rich. Thanks, Robbie. Glad to be here. So happy to be here. So the way this all started for this um, for this particular podcast is I was talking to Rich at lunch here at AJU. I've been the acting business chair here. And I was asking about this class. And for those of you who saw the stand-up comedy clip on on, on my blog, robertrichman.com, some of this came out of the conversation with Rich, especially the part of talking about how high expectations of marriage have come. It's everything. The best lover, best friend. They're a roommate. They're somebody who um, uh, who you share all your secrets with. They're a, they're they're compassionate, but they're also sexy. Like the, it's just the list just went on. And as Rich showed me this out of one of the books that he teaches from, I was blown away. I was just thinking, wow, I can't believe how far this has come. And Rich was explaining that it's a recent phenomenon. And then we just started talking, and I said, we've got to get you on the podcast. So welcome. So here I am. So here you are. Yeah. Cool. So a uh, little background on this. I, what I did is teach a course called Eros Myths of Love and Intimacy. Uh, it's part of a uh, our core curriculum here, so it's called an advanced course seminar about big questions. They have contemporary issues and big questions. So they asked me to design a big questions one, and I went with this. It's a little outside my field of expertise, um, but it's something that I've thought a lot about, and uh, I thought it'd be fun to string together some readings and some films on it, and it worked great. I'm going to tweak it a little bit and teach it again next year. Very cool. Very cool. So where do you want to start with this? Do we start with the history perspective? Because I know you actually took them through a history of love, right? Uh, yeah, we looked at it historically in a couple different ways. Um, the opening question that, that we looked at in the course, uh, beyond simply just what is love, uh, but is love, is romantic love a universal? Does everybody on earth, does every culture experience what we understand to be romantic love? Uh, and, and they don't? Well, it's seemingly a straightforward question. Um, but there are many who would argue that romantic love, as we understand it, was invented in the 12th century, uh, which is not to say that the emotion of love was invented at that time period. Uh, certainly, I think it would be very hard to deny that people haven't experienced love um, between uh, themselves and a significant other for longer than that and, and across cultures. Uh, but there's a school of thought that says the construction of romantic love as we understand it in the West, what we celebrate in our films and literature, and uh, that is something that gelled at a particular point in time for a particular set of reasons. And just to, to get clearer on terms here, can you define romantic love maybe as opposed to just pure love? Well, uh, we looked at in the course uh, some literary theorists, actually, who went through a definition, and they came up with a list of, of seven attributes or so, and I wouldn't be able to say them off the top of my head, um, but they include things uh, like feeling as if your life plans uh, are subject to radical change as a result of the feelings 
that you're experiencing about this person. Um, thinking about them significantly all of the time while you're not there, intrusive thoughts about the other person. Uh, in essence, it comes down to this notion of what we call falling in love. Yeah, these are sounding kind of like symptoms of a medical condition. Like, do you have these symptoms? It's going to disrupt your life. <laughs> well, it's valid you say that because prior to the 12th century, uh, you know, so, some of the people that write about this will look at different cultures and point out that I, I think in the Greek culture, for example, the notion of falling in love was considered negative. It was considered to be a temporary psychosis. This was not how matches between two you know, marriage partners were supposed to happen. And it was negative to the community for you to undergo this emotional attachment to somebody else. It was seen as, as something that was not desirable. Wow. So does that mean they, they saw it from... Um is it because of that an ego-based perspective? I'm curious because does that mean they were worried it would disrupt that, that person's job and they wouldn't be with society? Like, why would they care so much? Why wouldn't they just be like, rich is crazy, whatever? I can't really speak to why the Greeks particularly thought this. I don't know the full context of it. Uh, but the way that we looked at it, psychological perspectives, more much contemporary psychological, psychological perspectives on this in the course would suggest that romantic love as we understand it in the West uh, involves some potentially damaging illusions and is not a proper basis for a long-term, committed, monogamous relationship. It goes back to the expectations that, that, you know, that we were laughing about in lunch that day. Um, there are illusions involved with those emotions, and I think that various cultures would say that uh, the the types of commitment that a community can be built on, that a family can be built on, don't start there. And how has this been landing in your class? You and I are contemporaries, and and this generation you're talking to is what twenty years younger. Mm-hmm. Um, how a how less. <laughs> right? And how do they hear that? I mean, I I kind of hear some disappointment for myself, but I'm more I'm wondering if they're like, yeah, you know, that you're right. It is that way. Well, there's definitely moments of shock and disappointment, and and there's moments when I feel like I'm the bearer of great bad news, mm-hmm. uh, especially when we're deconstructing some of you know some of them uh, came in having loved and worshipped Titanic, and it's a film that we look at, and uh, you know I point out a lot of the ways that it plays to the illusory concepts of of love that we've been learning about in the class, and and that's disappointing for some of them. What's- we do. What's one of those illusory concepts? Well, um, for example, in Titanic, I mean, you have to consider that they basically know each other for three days. uh, And then he conveniently dies so that she's left with an unblemished image of who he is. And by the time we get to that in the course, we, we've gone through some psychological ways of looking at this. But basically, she's left with a projection of her ideal, which we use Jungian terminology to talk about this, that cannot be erased and can never go away. Um, and this, act, this projection of the ideal, we actually contrasted to human love. Uh, so Titanic sets that up. What's interesting about the movie is that we then return to her at the end of her life as a 101-year-old woman, I believe, after she has led a perfectly complete life which involved both deep risk-taking and giving up all of the social advantages of her class, 
Uh, she goes on to be an actor. She's successful in that. But then she gets married and moves to Iowa and has a very conventional middle class happy marriage that's unquestioned and really untalked about. But the idea here is that you get everything. You fall in love passionately. Uh, you're heartbroken about it, but it leads you to take the choice chances that you need to in your life to escape those gender bonds um, that that women face. But then you can be happily married and become a middle class, we don't know if housewife, but the suggestion is that, and nonetheless retire to your daughter's home in Hawaii at the end of your life and relive the magic of that that early love, which, by the way, she says she never told her husband that she had always held on to Jack in her heart. She says she never spoke about him again. So there's a sense where she's held on to this love in a sort of, uh, you could almost read it as betrayal. When she dies and goes to heaven, if we interpret the end of the movie that way, she finds him in the main staircase of Titanic. The husband that she spent most of her life with is nowhere to be found. So what is the film glorifying? I mean, those are the questions that we were asking, and many of the students that were in love with this movie hadn't thought it through in those terms. Got it. Got it. So what other myths? That said, that said, I should point out that a lot of the stuff that we talk about at the same time, the students, because some of it is commonsensical, and, you know, from another angle, you think, well, yeah, that does seem to be... um, those expectations seem to be too heightened. It's easy to see when you put together that list of all the things that we expect a partner to be that that's unrealistic. So I think both is going on. Their, their bubble is getting bursted at the same time that it's not entirely new to them. They they have a common sense understanding of the real expect or the what's at stake in terms of long-term commitment and human love. So what did you discover this studying it from the perspective of of culture as opposed to psychology and egoic need. And this is just something that, that anybody goes through in any culture. Um, what, what, what deeper things did you find? Well, for me, what was fascinating and it really came out as I was teaching the course, uh, it came out of the, the text that I had put together. I didn't have a strong idea that they would leave me to lead me to this realization, but we look at a book, it's called We, The Psychology of Romantic Love, a guy named Robert Johnson, who looks at the myth of Tristan and Isolde from a Jungian perspective, Carl Jung's psychological framework. So we could get into that, we could talk about it, but you're asking me about the culture. But the claim that he makes, he's one of those that says that romantic love in many ways was invented as a cultural construct, as a social construct. And he says that uh, and he uses this myth of Tristan and Isolde as one of the first myths to incorporate romantic love as its basis. It was actually uh, an oral myth that had come from uh, what is now Great Britain and uh, that culture, but it had been brought over to France in the 12th century. And in France in the 12th century, uh, this poetic movement in the south of France uh, had started um, started to incorporate romantic love into their poetry. And this was celebrated in the court culture. Our notion of courtship comes out of this. Our notion of chivalric love comes out of this moment in Western history. Uh, so this is when romance began to be celebrated. It migrated from the south of France to the north of France and to some of the greatest courts at that time in, in medieval uh, nobility. Uh, and a lot of interesting things happened there, but this was the moment when the vaunted love 
of a knight for his woman came into play. And so you start to get myths being written about this. Tristan and Isolde is, is one of these examples. Uh, the whole Arthurian legends and uh, Lancelot and Guinevere come out of this time period. So they still carry down to us today. Johnson's take on this is that this came in a moment when the spiritual path for Western cultures uh, was unclear and was being monopolized by a Catholic church that in the West had been separated out from popular culture, had become a political force. Uh, The role of the Pope was less about spiritual enlightenment than political power, um, and that's what the church was being used for. We also looked at a history of marriage, and there's evidence to show that in many ways the church hadn't been involved in peasant marriages in any significant sense until around this time period. It was in these centuries that the church became very involved, and a lot of that grew out of political considerations about controlling noble marriages. So the peasant customs followed the noble customs, and the church was involved because they wanted to have a say in who married who in terms of divvying up land and power, uh, which had a lot to do with women being used as, as a form of property or at least as a, as a conveyance of title and, and, and wealth. So Johnson's view is that the church wasn't serving its role as, as a sacred institution, as a path towards individual self-realization through spirituality. And so his contention is that romantic love became celebrated, uh, became part of the culture. So it's, it's perhaps a little disingenuous to say that it was invented, because again, the emotions were there, but that they were codified in the way that chivalric love came to be an institutional force. That came out of a desire to have, uh, and, and it's not something that would have been talked about at the time, but people were attracted to this because it offered a different spiritual path. And in okay, its so earliest form, much of this romantic love of the 12th century was actually meant to be platonic. So well, knights would fall in love with a married woman. And whether that, I mean, that was not expected to be consummated in a sexual sense. They were to carry out their whims or the, the whims of the merry woman of the desires, that maybe not whims, but um, go on a crusade, uh, you know, guard this bridge, uh, carry my, my handkerchief. I mean, these types of things, which maybe are stereotypical today. I'm not sure that's exactly how it played out in that, in that century. But they were expected to do these things to prove their love, but to produce, prove in a way of fidelity, and a fidelity to a cause that was beyond them. And I think you can see the parallels here with being faithful to uh, some notion of a higher power. And in many ways, some scholars will say that the cult of the Virgin Mary is mixed into all of this because she represented, she was in a way the Catholic Church's attempt to regain some of their power by saying, oh, you want to be in service to a woman who is pure and above you? Uh, we've got that. We've got the Virgin Mary. Uh, so this is all getting mixed in in France in the 12th and 13th century. So let me just see if I'm getting this right. You're saying that romantic love at this point was developed as a response to the Catholic Church owning marriage and relationships and people wanting something beyond that. Is that what you're saying? Well, you're phrasing it in a way as if people sat down and said, we've got a problem with the church and we need romantic love. I mean, the idea would be that it was picked up and— celebrated in the culture, 
because there was a need amongst enough of the population for a spiritual path uh, because the church was not fulfilling that function. They didn't understand it necessarily in that way. Um, You know, the the history of this is that there was a storytelling and poetic art and singing art in the south of France. These were the troubadours, which, you know, we understand what a troubadour is. But this came from a very particular moment in time. Uh, and there was a mix of cultures there, and there's much debate about why romantic love came into being. Some say that it came from the, Ara- the Arabic presence in Spain, and, and the troubadours would go into Spain and back into France. What is now France? This actually was not France at the time. Um, and they would bring these ideas, and, and the Arabs had held on to, I mean, they celebrated romantic love uh, differently than in the Christian West. Uh, and so sex was treated differently, uh, erotic art was a little more acceptable, so some of this might have been brought in. Christian West had lost uh, the classics of, of Greek and Latin society, the Arabs had not, the Moors, uh, so Ovid's love poems were in those courts, and they might have been brought over into France. That's one way of looking at it. There were also heretic religious cults that had different ideas about the role of women and love. Uh, so the Cathars in southern France are another potential source of this. Nobody really knows. So what was the culture of this before this? I mean, you're growing up as a kid. You turn 18, you're teens. Like what, what can, are you able to take us through that? Like before this period of romantic love, would you just suddenly end up married to the next farmer's daughter or what? Well, so we look at uh, Stephanie Kuntz has a history of marriage. Uh, and her approach in many ways is political economic. Uh, And so her argument is that marriage has primarily been not about romantic love, but about economic considerations uh, that have been determined through families and and community values. So it doesn't play out the same for different classes or in different historical periods. It doesn't play out exactly the same way all the way through, but... In the centuries prior to the 12th century in Western Europe, these decisions would have been made based on, uh, for the peasant class, based on considerations about the how a household would be able to make, produce enough food uh, within the acceptable parameters of a community. Um, so matches were made. Uh, basically, you know, you had a very limited range of potential matches because of geography and and class, and then the families would basically set you up with somebody, and the marker of success in that type of marriage was that you were producing enough food uh, that the new boundaries of the unified farm worked within the community politics, uh, that you were both contributing to the common chores of the community, things like that. Uh, And you would learn to love each other, along the way, but you had not fallen in love and and made a love match. That's just not the way it worked. Wow. And so for them discovering romantic love brought in by these, by the troubadours, the Arab world, et cetera, was that like, you know, Tim Leary bringing LSD to to Harvard to to bring this powerful force into it? Well, I think it it was so slow moving that no, it wasn't anything like that. Um, In in the peasant classes, the culture changed only very slowly across the many years. For the nobility, it might have been a little bit more powerful. So there was a particular court in the north of France, 
Catherine, I believe, was the queen. And, and oftentimes the queens sort of ran the court. The kings were on crusades or, or out visiting the various parts of their empires, trying to get them together and make sure that they were, could hold on to power according to the feudal system. Uh, so the women would be in charge of the court and sort of the culture of, of how that played out. And, and this particular uh, queen, Catherine, um, employed uh, in the north, they weren't troubadours, but minstrels. Uh, and she had them focus on romantic love. And, and so a lot of the Guinevere and, and Arthurian legends came out of her court. They were played up. She wrote treatises uh, or had her doctrine about love and how it worked. For her, love could not exist within marriage at that point in time. So this is like real Housewives of Camelot episode going on. In some on way. For, yeah, at that point. And, and a lot of this is, will seem contradictory. And, and there's two reasons for that. One, because I'm not a medieval scholar and I haven't entirely made sense of it. Two, because I don't think we know the whole history. And it, it is contradictory. I mean, history works that way. Um, so it wasn't immediately codified. But at that point in time, romantic love among the nobility was about adultery. She was very firm, and this goes back to why would you get married? Marriages for her, for lords and nobles, were about unifying property. And women had extremely little power as far as... And and they were determined by what the church said, who you could get married to. Oftentimes the church would be the arbiter of, of... consanguinity where you know how closely were you related to these people and you had to be separated by four or five degrees so oftentimes marriages were annulled for those reasons i mean they weren't getting along or the the king no longer had the interest in the lands of of this woman and her clan uh, but they used the catholic rules to say actually we found out we're too closely related we need to annul this one (laughs) Uh, that's what marriage was like so love for them love as it became came to be written about in these myths was adulterous almost by necessity that's what started to change in the South, as I understand it, the notion of romantic love was much much more pure and holy. In the North, it incorporated actual consummated sex uh, and lost some of that sacred edge, which takes us back to, I think, what Johnson was saying, because his point is that over the centuries since then, this great hope of Western civilization, that it would find a more true or more useful spiritual path for individual self-realization through romantic love as opposed to the institutional religions of the time was diverted, perverted, corrupted. Um, And we came to see romantic love as something other than that. It it has not offered us that opportunity uh, and, in fact, has bogged us down Recently, in terms of trying to make, you know, trying to mix erotic attraction uh, with what's required to have long-term committed monogamous relationship, which we've held to be the ideal. Wow. So Lancelot's going on missions for the woman. Mm Mm-hmm. He regards this as a spiritual practice, like I am worshiping the divine through you. Well, Lancelot, maybe not, not, not in particular, by that but, point. Um, but certainly in the South, the troubadours in the early uh, stages of this, and, and again, it depends who you're pointing to and, and which ideas, but um, perhaps the Cathars. Are, is the sect that is most associated with this idea of a more spiritual notion of romantic love. Um, 
they were actually considered to be uh, heretics, heretics. Uh, the Pope, the Catholic Pope, ultimately launched a crusade to wipe them out in the south of France. Um, they were Christian. They had different ideas. They didn't agree with the Catholic Church. Uh, and some people will say that the notion of romantic love as, as a supreme spiritual quest came out of that impulse. Uh, but that was the idea, that, that experiencing this type of strong emotion for somebody else and dedicating your life in that way uh, was a form of discipline, hmm. yoga, if you will. And how much did, did the class fast forward into today and the internet world and the myths of love now? Did you guys cover that or was it only the history? No, we we got there. I don't know that we necessarily went into the internet world, except the day one of my students was on Jewish date and I confiscated his phone. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we went through, so we went through the medieval period and then we looked at Madame Bovary, the classic uh, 19th century novel uh, by Gustave Flaubert that looks at the psychology of love uh, from the point of view of a middle-class, rural French housewife uh, and her expectations and disillusions and disappointments and affairs and, and the tragedy that results. Um, and then we moved into the 20th century, and all of that within Kuntz's framework of marriage, where she's saying that this notion of marriage that we have today, that marriage is based on romantic love and should fulfill our aspirations of romantic love, is really only about 200 years old. And what we understand today is traditional marriage, two bread, or rather single breadwinner family, um, single household, nuclear family, living alone, these types of ideas began to be formed as early as perhaps the late 18th century, but really only came into a crystallized form in the mid-20th century, weren't around all that long, and are now rapidly changing again. And that's one of the myths that you know we looked at in, in this class, the myth of traditional marriage mm -hmm. uh, as being a romantic-based institution and that you choose marriage for love, uh, which is not to say that it's bunk or it shouldn't be done that way. Um, but the idea was to historicize it and realize that it, it started at a particular point in time. And prior to that, marriage in the West would have been arranged primarily uh, and still is in many cultures around the world. And so myths of love and intimacy, did you find in, in the study of this practices uh, around love and intimacy that are unique to certain cultures that we would maybe even be surprised by? Well, the course wasn't really cross-cultural, although we did look at it a little in the beginning. Uh, when Kuntz goes about trying to define marriage, what is it, she offers up all the various definitions that have been used and then finds some culture where that's not the way they do marriage. And her point being to say that obviously, you know, marriage is something and we recognize it and it's something that has existed in every human culture, every human society. But there's no one thing that we can say that marriage is. Um, so if you try to define marriage, for example, as being uh, cohabitating with your marriage partner, well, you can find cultures where that, that's not the case. Um, you know, she has a culture in China where, uh, or rather, raising children together. This is the counterexample. So in China, siblings raise the children together. 
And children are created on sort of secret nighttime trysts. Hmm. Uh, and there's no living together and raising children together as far as marriage is concerned. And for just about any definition, whether it's inheritance rights um, or legitimacy of children um, or household economy, you can find some counterexample of some culture where it's not done that way. Um, you can certainly find cultures where monogamy is not the expectation. Um, there's a culture in Venezuela where the a pregnant woman will have sex with multiple men, and they're all considered to be the father, uh, because the understanding has been that the child is created from the, the mass of, of semen, uh, and so the more fathers, the better. Um, culturally, this works out, so they say, because then all of these men have a claim in the child's life, and so they get a much more communal upbringing and, and all the benefits of, of multiple fathers as opposed to just relying on one. Huh. Uh, so we did look at some of that stuff, but it wasn't a cross-cultural class. So we, we spent a couple, you know, couple readings, couple weeks looking at things like that. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the book uh, Born to Run? No. Great, great book. It talks about all the, uh, the the cultural perspective of running in these tribes that are these ultra-marathoners in, in Mexico. And he, the author has to go deep in to find it. It's fascinating what they find about the culture. found that, that, that the, they're, they're so shy— they're a completely shy culture. I mean, even husband to wife are, are, can be really shy. Shy is part of the culture. But what they do is this once-a-year event where they all get hammer drunk, <laughs> and then anything goes. Like, you get in a fight with that guy you always wanted to get a fight. You sleep with that woman you wanted to. Anything. It just all happens on that one night. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the sort of bacchanal uh, is, I guess, familiar to some cultures. I mean, what is that? Way, well, the the the... Um, moment of the year in which almost anything goes. I mean, in some ways, that's the Fat Tuesday concept. Mm. Uh, or, you know, we did take a look, because this course ran over Valentine's Day, some argue that the roots of Valentine's Day come from a sort of orgiastic pagan ritual in Rome uh, in which uh, goats would be slaughtered. And uh, I can't remember now if it was the men or the women that beat the other with the the bloody sinew of the goats, uh, and this was supposed to induce fertility, and then they would draw names and be paired up and, and supposed to match off. Now, you know, whether it was actually like this or... This is a family show, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- this is on NPR, where I found the article that really? I gave to him. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that there's cultures where, you know, they have outlets for these types of things in that way. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I, I took that stand-up comedy class, and one of the things that we were talking about was about how the more you study comedy, the less you laugh. Like, it's just not as the same experience um, studying it as an art form. How has this been for you personally? Does it make you less interested in love and marriage as you're studying it? No, I, I like to think it makes me better capable of being in a relationship. Really? How so? Which, you know, frankly is why I ever started looking at this stuff in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so where we end up with this, we, we the last book that we read in the course is called Passionate Marriage uh, by a sex therapist, actually, um, David Schnark. Uh, and he argues... Uh, that, or he presents a framework for increasing your intimacy over the course of a long-term committed marriage. 
and so the you know his argument i mean this is how i try to sell people on the book he makes the claim that the best sex of your life will be if you're in a marriage uh in your 50s and 60s and that sounded pretty good to me uh from a guy who was a little commitment phobic uh so i said okay you know i'll, I'll investigate that where is he coming from uh and he talks about intimacy being the basis of of good sex but in order to establish intimacy uh, we need to understand marriage in a very different way than we do. So this goes back to that allude, the illusions about marriage, that you should fall in love, and then your partnership could be continue to be that romantic ideal at the same time that they become, you know, your co-earner, your fellow child rearer, uh, the person that helps out with the work around the house, the one that you take care of when you're sick, that you see in their worst moments, that you confide your secrets to mm-hmm. and they hold on to and protect and that they confide theirs to you to make sure it's reciprocal and you each have something on each other and nobody's <laughs> going to tell anybody. And, that you know, uh, you know, Robert Johnson, from his Jungian point of view, he, he would say that that's a projection and perhaps it's necessary for falling in love. What's a projection? Um... Uh, the romantic ideal, uh, he would say that this notion of falling in love is actually us projecting out our own ideal onto the other. We don't have to necessarily get into the, the Jungian terms yeah. of how all this works, but he would say we're projecting out something that we want to see. Mm. Uh, and in essence, that's impossible for the other person to hold up. Yeah. They're not that. Yeah. Uh, we're not seeing them as a real person. They can only fail. And in any case, and this is the spiritual connection, what we should be doing is cultivating that ideal within ourselves. So Schnark says that what we need to do mm. in a successful, long-term, committed relationship is learn how to hold on to ourselves in close proximity to the other, as opposed to holding on to the other. Wow. And if you think about the myths that we see... Can you just repeat that? I think that was really just powerful. <laughs> well, he says that we need to learn how to hold on to ourselves in close proximity to the other instead of holding on to the other. Yeah. One of the ways that he illustrates this, he talks about something called hugging till relaxed. And apparently it's something that he has his, his clients do. He'll have them stand up and hug each other and then just stay in the hug. For how minutes, long? Minutes. Minutes. Yeah, which you can imagine feels awkward, you know, uh, after the first perhaps warmth of the hug and then you're, okay, haha, this is funny. And then after 60 seconds or two minutes, you know, you got to be thinking, okay, this is just awkward. What am I meant to think about here? What am I? But he has them do this because, first of all, because it allows you to touch and then feel relaxed within the touch. And I think that's part of it. And, you know, maybe you develop that, but it certainly, you know... I think we've all been in relationships at, at, or moments in relationships where we're not relaxed uh, when we're touching the other, whether that's in the beginning because we got the butterflies or because something's gone wrong and, and we've lost the intimacy or something like that. But beyond this, he says that a lot of couples will lean on each other. Mm. And then the way this works as a metaphor is if you can imagine one of the couple, one member stepping away, the other will fall. They're not holding themselves up. Mm. It's not a good union, he would say. And so strongly intimate couples will hug, but they won't be leaning on each other. They'll each be holding themselves up. And this becomes a metaphor 
for a well-balanced relationship. Wow. So just the nature of doing that practice exposes you on an experiential level to that because we don't hug leaning on somebody. So by doing that exercise, you actually experience what he means by the intimacy. So he says, yeah, I've only ever done it once, but... Uh, How'd that go? It was very good. Really? It was good, yeah. Huh. Um, Six minutes? No, she didn't want to hold into it for that long, but it was long enough to, to be, I think, useful. And You're like, I see where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it served its purpose in the moment. I didn't, I didn't give the full context, and it wasn't a nefarious purpose, but uh, I think it did establish intimacy at yeah. the moment. And well, speaking of that, a recent phenomenon has come up in the media with this whole idea of that article from New York Times how to fall in love with anyone, which Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is those, I think, 36 intimate questions followed up by four minutes of staring into somebody's eyes. And they say, you know, you're in love after that. Uh, What were your thoughts when reading that? It's funny because uh, as I was planning out this course, some friends of mine, I was telling them about it, and they sent me that. And they said, you got to use this. You should have the students pair off and do this. And <laughs> ultimately, it wasn't where I wanted to go with the course, but I, I kept it in mind. And then I looked at it again towards the end of the course. My thoughts on it are that it's not a magic bullet. Um, I think that it can certainly accelerate the process. I think it can serve as a, as a catalyst and an accelerant. Mm. Uh, so if two people have the potential, I think those are the types of questions. And for people that don't know, they're meant, it's meant to start off with relatively innocuous questions and move into more intimate questions as you go up the 36. Although I didn't necessarily find it that way. Um, but some of them involve saying things like compliment your partner, be honest, do it in a way that you wouldn't normally if if you just met somebody, um, something like that. Tell them about tell them your life story in four minutes. Uh, <laughs> you know, these are some of the questions. So, you know, I think it could be valuable, but I think it's been uh, celebrated as sort of a magic bullet or uh, a gimmick. And my guess is that that's never what it was intended to be. But I certainly don't find it that way. Hmm. I, I think the, the, the powerful part is the end with, with the staring because I've – do you know David Data? You heard of him? No. He's, he's a, a modern author on relationships and sex and intimacy. And I went to one of his programs. And one of the exercises you do, you're, you're, you're learning about all this on, a, on an emotional and spiritual level. And one of the exercises is you, you, you pick a partner um, and you stare into their eyes and it lasts really about 20 minutes and he's having you say certain things. So one was focused on love, the other attraction, the other sex. And so but the first one, love, I decided for this exercise, it's often what I do even with menus, is rather than, than deal with choice, I, I just went to the first person I saw. So rather than thinking who's the right partner for this, it's just whoever I looked up and saw, I said, okay, that's it. So I went up to this woman. And we stand across from each other, and she's got this kind of mean look on her face. And we're doing this this exercise, and in my body, I can feel, it feels like she's attacking me. That my, my heart is beating fast. I feel like I'm freaking out. She's got this stern look on her face, and um, he's having us say these lines of love to each other, and I am feeling just attacked and attacked. All I want to do is run out of the room. And we're doing this minute after minute after minute, a lot of staring and just saying these things back and forth. And then at one point, I just start to see, because it wasn't like a scowl on her face. It was very subtle. But I started to see her eyes soften and then soften and soften. And in my body, I could feel like letting go. And then these tears came out that she was feeling. And it was almost like 
the the message that she was saying was you're you're not strong enough no man is strong enough i can destroy you and when i didn't move and, and just stood there through all that she could finally soften in and uh-huh. for me it was an amazing experience of just sticking through it and being there despite wanting everything in my body just to get out of there and away from that woman and the transformation that happened as a result and it was really through this eye eye gazing you know just a, like 5 6 inches from each other's face um that it came through well, um, it sounds like, you know, we're talking about the notion of staying close to somebody, staying mm-hmm. in proximity and allowing them to deal with themselves while you deal with yourself. And for me, that's the power of Schnark's perspective. Uh, I always suspect that maybe most people listening to this just know that innately mm-hmm. and I didn't pick that one up <laughs> along the way and and for me it's just an amazing revelation but uh, but this for me is what ties it back into that notion of spiritual development because Schnark would say that it always comes back to you uh, when you're working things out in your relationship uh it always requires you to come to terms with yourself mm. and to do more work. And it's why I really value the way that he looks at marriage. He actually talks about marriage as being cyclical. So he says that when he draws the diagram, it's two circles, one inside the other, that are paths that you take on your marriage. So you're going around these circles, but at a certain point you can go from the inner circle to the outer one and then back from the outer one to the inner one. Well, the inner one is begins as comfort and then can get into boredom and then can get into conflict. And at that moment, you have a choice as to whether you're going to go onto the outer path or stay on the inner path. And going onto the outer path means going onto the path of growth. And his argument is that a healthy marriage will always involve starting from comfort, I mean, this is the falling in love. This is why, you know, I, I don't think that we throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that that moment of projection, that moment of ideal falling in love, that it's an illusion to be tossed aside or, or that perhaps it's necessary for us to embark on this journey and perhaps it does show us that there's a deep compatibility that, that means that we can do this. But at some point, that comfort becomes boredom, becomes struggle or conflict in some way like that. And if we stay there... Then it falls apart. You need to move to the outside growth circle, and that means, in, in Schnark's way of looking at it, holding on to yourself, realizing what's at stake, realizing what you're willing to accept and not, making that clear, not necessarily verbally, and asking your partner to respond. Again, not necessarily verbally. Um, if you can navigate that, and he says there's always a risk, when you decide what you're willing to take and not, there's always a risk that your partner will not respond. And they will say, well, I, I can't do that. And the relationship ends here. Um, but if you can navigate that successfully, both of you, each of you will have grown and you will return to the comfort cycle. Mm. And what was for me so powerful is that this suggests that having problems in your marriage or your long-term relationship is not abnormal. It doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong. It just means that you have more work to do. Mm. And that work is ultimately about you and your internal growth. And I think for a guy that 
can fall into the trap or, 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 or seize the tension between self-growth and the quote-unquote sacrifices of being in a relationship to suddenly realize, and, and Schnark says this directly, the marriage can be used as a tool for your self-realization. Um, and, you know, and I, maybe in some ways these exercises like hugging till relaxed or looking deep into somebody's eyes uh, are a microcosm uh, of that, of holding on to yourself and, and challenging somebody else. And maybe you use the word challenge in some scenarios, but in any case, having somebody else do the same hmm. and then seeing what comes out of it. Hmm. And so you're saying if, if they stay in the inner circle, that means just staying in those same emotions? Schnark calls it staying in emotional gridlock mm. because neither side wants to give. Mm. Uh, and, you know, one of the things he points out is that couples that are fighting oftentimes will claim that they're not communicating. And he'll say, or that there's no love there. And I'll say, well, you are communicating. And you clearly love each other because you care so much. Even if you're not talking to each other and sleeping in separate bedrooms. He says this does not mean that all is lost. It means that much is at stake. Hmm. But that nobody is stepping up and doing any internal work. And they're expecting it from the other person. Which is maybe the dark side of that projection. Because the idea that I've fallen in love with you. You are my ideal. What happens when they stop responding to being your ideal or if you change internally and now your ideal you need something else for them to fulfill that ideal that's where maybe that expectation comes in but the way that we sell western love in, in, in western society oftentimes is that the other person will stand up and do that for you mm. and that's the mark of, of that good relationship um, and it's noble and I think that I'm, I'm certainly not advocating that we don't do things for our partners or anything like that but perhaps we don't accentuate that it also requires us going deep within and doing some internal growth uh, in order to get over these, these issues. Wow. I have to wonder. I mean, that's, that's really good. I'm just taking it in. Um, you know, because there's, there's, the, there's the first circle, there's a second circle, and I guess beyond that in the space is that the, the relationship doesn't exist. It's going, it's... It's, you know, a person can opt out, as you said. Um, yeah, and there's a path towards opting out from the inner and outer circle. Right, right. And I wonder about the statistics around relationships today, because now more than ever, I mean, talk about that. You were saying that the feudal system, you're on a farm, you only have so many people, so many families. It's like you wouldn't even consider it in some cases because there's just not another option, whereas now there's 40 apps you can have for it on your phone and and it's so easy so accessible there's so much distraction um the you know if we're talking about media and models for it there's hollywood which shows people getting together and breakups and all the drama of that and i wonder um if that cycle is changing where maybe people are going through that really quickly and in and out of it with more people now that that there's so much space that makes sense yeah, I think I understand what you're saying. I mean, this is comes back to what for me was one of the sort of joyful discoveries of this course because I hadn't put it all together. But so Kuntz's history of marriage is is interesting, and trust me, I'll, I'll work back to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. But she starts from the very, very beginning and talking about how did marriage work in uh, tribal societies, and her way of thinking about this is that. Tribal societies 
the tribe would be divided into bands, and they would spend most of their time apart, but they would come together, maybe in these sort of ceremonial times of, of year. Uh, I'm not sure that always anything goes, but they would come together to celebrate and reestablish the bonds between the bands as a full tribe. And it was in those moments that primarily daughters, although some of her counterexamples are, are where it's not daughters that are traded from band to band, but it would be sons, but primarily daughters would be given to men in another band uh, as marriage partners. And what this would do would establish connections between the bands and solidify the political economy mm-hmm. of the tribe. Because, of course, if your daughter or granddaughter is in some other band, you care about them, the culture is more likely to remain similar. Mm-hmm. And crucially, in her point of view, if your band does not have enough food at any particular point in time, they're much more likely to come to your aid. Because after all, you're all interrelated. In that scenario, she says, the way that marriage worked was was there were multiple, many, many forms of marriage. Everything shifted in her history with the switch to sedentary agricultural society. Because at that point in time, daughters were no longer given to link different bands together, but now to consolidate power within particular families or bands. Uh, So as I simplified it down in, in the course, if you had the good land next to the river and you were producing more of a crop... And the your other band had the bad land, you know, the desert land somewhere where they didn't have water. Instead of now trading daughters between those bands in order to create political, economic, cultural ties, now the families that were, had the good land would trade daughters amongst themselves in order to consolidate their power. Mm-hmm. And you start to get class differentiation. So, you know, the mm-hmm. idea is that you're seeing marriage as, as part of a tool of class stratification. And this, Kuntz brings quite a bit of evidence to bear, goes on and on throughout Western civilization, Uh, until perhaps our own time, when we have created an economy that has allowed us to dislodge marriage from that vital economic role. Mm. Uh, And so for us, that dislodging looks like moving away from this traditional marriage of the last 200 years or so, but Kunst sees it in a much longer perspective. So she's not saying that that form of marriage was all that there's ever been in the West, but she suggests in the end of her book that maybe we're getting back to a point where we have a freedom in how we arrange marriages that's more akin to that very early band and tribe, not because our economy is the same and not because we're going to trade daughters among bands, but because the economics of how we do things, at least in some pockets of our world today, make it not so important uh, that individuals stay together in order to raise children and have enough money to have a household. What does this mean? I think one thing it means is that we're opening up to ideas about same-sex marriage couples. Um, so that's that's perhaps why we're seeing uh, more success with those arguments and, and legal infrastructure for that. Um, and I think that it also unmoors us. 
if that's not the reason for marriage, if that kernel of marriage is no longer there, what does that make of marriage? What do we do with it? I don't know. Right now I'm thinking of Mad Men and, you know, that point in time from the 50s to the 60s, you know, where uh, the nuclear family really was seen to be breaking down. Uh, And that's scary. And I think some people would argue that what it means is that no marriage, free love. And maybe that's what was being argued in the 60s and 70s. But I think we saw that that in some ways was unsatisfying in community terms and and, and social terms, but also in individual terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I got out of Schnark and what started to make a lot more sense to me when I put it in this long historical framework, which is just how I like to think, is that, huh, maybe if marriage gets unmoored from that, we use it as a tool for this individual self-realization. It can become part of a disciplined spiritual practice, which is not to say that that's how we necessarily should go into choosing our our matches, but it certainly gave me a way of thinking about what's going on in my relationships Mm -hmm. in any particular moment and what's at stake for me and and how do I want to handle this. Uh, It was less about, I mean, to be very crass, is she worth it right now? Uh, Then what opportunities does this give me? to to hold on to this commitment or to choose this commitment or something like that. By the way, I should say I'm not married. I've never been married, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I I can't speak to um, to navigating success over the long long term. Uh, mm-hmm. This is me coming to terms with it. Yeah, yeah. I haven't looked into the legalities of it, but is is it still a case where if you live somebody for a certain amount of time, it's common law marriage? Good question. I don't know. Because I wondered about that from the perspective of, as you're talking about it, I'm like, okay, maybe there's not so much of a need of a legal framework for marriage so much, um, according to, to, to the dialogue we were having there. And I was wondering, is the state doing something to make sure that it's involved by by doing that? Um, that's sure. a good question. I don't know about common law marriage, but uh, I mean, certainly the state is involved in legitimizing marriage for you know in terms of inheritance and all of the healthcare things and all the things you hear about right so much about in terms of of the gay marriage debate and what's at stake for um partners who are able to have this legal recognition or not yeah yeah Hmm. cool well we're coming up against our time is there anything else you want to make sure we share huh um no, I, I you know I I think we covered it. Um, I would invite anybody who is at all interested in these ideas and and who's interested in either working on their own.